Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday, the 25th of the 4th. Michael, how have you been? I've been, I've been fine, Gary. Thank you very much. How are you? Oh, I've been pretty good. I do have uh, some news, Michael, that may make your day a little bit less good. Yes. Dr. Catherine Day, I regret to inform you, Michael, is at it again. Is she really? What is Dr. Day at this time? So, you may remember that Dr. Day was brought into Ireland a while ago. Well, she's Irish. So she came back to Ireland and wrote a uh, report on homelessness services, Michael, and, and how the country should could uh, solve homelessness. And it was widely lauded by the papers and the NGOs. And it was it was God's gift to the area, Michael. And very quietly after that, it began to get into the papers that this report had finally made its way to finance. And they had looked at it and went... Well, that's all very well, but how the fuck do we pay for that? Well, she's taken that can-do attitude, Michael, to the Citizens' Assembly. (laughs) So, yes, this episode will be about the Citizens' Assembly on gender equality. Because that's what this issue needed, Michael. Two men talking about what's good for women. Hmm. Am I a man today? I don't know. I mean... I'm getting so tired of these binary definitions. I feel very constricted by them, Gary. Well, I mean, that's good, Michael, because if some of these recommendations come in, I will be telling you to change your gender for business purposes. So the Citizens' Assembly on Gender Equality has come back and it's voted for everything. Everything they could have voted for at levels that would make a dictatorship blush. That's my first point. You know, if I were to look at the Citizens' Assembly, and I always forget what it's called in its in its contemporary iteration because it has names different names at different times and i didn't know anything about what it was or what it was supposed to do or how it was set up or what the subjects were under discussion or what the actual real purpose of the thing was and i saw the results i just thought these are some issues that are current in society and these are the results of the opinion of this group just the numbers gary would start setting off alarm bells in democ- in democracy not in any country where people are voting freely you don't get results like this i mean there's there's always at least 15 percent of people who will vote no to anything or yes to anything i mean you're talking like 94 95 percent 96 percent levels on on stuff so we will go into what the citizens assembly voted on and its various things but to start off with, Citizens Assembly are a bit of a bugbear of mine. I've never liked them. I mean, democracy for all, that it has its many, many, many flaws, at least you can say is representative. But then you vote for people, and then those people set up a second assembly of 100 people who will then advise that. That just doesn't make any sense to me. The point I just wanted to, to open with on this is that Citizens Assemblies whatever you think about them, are not representative bodies. And we know they're not representative bodies because Red Sea, who put together the Citizens' Assembly, they're the people involved for recruiting people into them, they had a bit of an issue a couple of years ago with the Citizens' Assembly, and they needed to actually audit it. Now, that audit is publicly available, and it has a couple of interesting things in it. Uh-huh. So some of the stuff that comes up in this audit, I'll put a, a link to the actual thing. The audit itself makes the point that 99 people is not enough. You can't have a representative sample at 99. just can't happen. Even if you are a very homogenous population, just can't be done. Not for a population of this size. 
But they also make the point here that because if you join the Citizens' Assembly, you're not paid for attendance. And they make the point that because you're not paid for attendance, you're going to attract very particular people. And they themselves say that even they, when they're doing something, um, unless it's, you know, they call you over the phone, they will always offer money for it. Because if you don't do that, you will massively bias the sample. They went to the Citizens' Assembly and they told them that if we don't offer people money, we're going to get people who are interested in particular types of political discourse and political debate. Basically, you're going to get activists. So if you, let's say, decide you're having the Citizens' Assembly on marriage equality, and you go around and you ask 100 people, the people who are most interested in that are going to be those who are strongly opposed and those who are strongly in favour, and most other people aren't going to want to give up their weekend. The Citizens' Assembly acknowledge that. But here's the exact line from the, the audit. A financial incentive will not be offered to encourage participation. It is acknowledged that this may result in a group that have a stronger civic interest than a truly representative sample, which is a wonderful way of responding to what Red Sea told them, which was, if you do this, you're just going to create a building full of activists. <laughs> and lo and behold, it came to pass. Shocking, Michael. Absolutely. Amazed. We're all amazed. So that's, that's the first step. This thing, even if you like Citizens' Assembly, Assemblies, as an idea, this one is not a good example of it. It would have to be much larger, and there would have to be some sort of either financial or other incentive there to ensure you actually pulled from the general population. It doesn't, it never has. The Assembly themselves told Red Sea not to do that. Instead, actually, they told Red Sea to just pay more money to their, to their recruiters when they found people who could go into the uh, citizens assembly which would actually if anything if anything at all probably just incentivize those recruiters to take on board people who are very interested but might not be totally representative so in fact you would just most likely unless there were very strong internal checks on the side of red sea you would find a load of people who would be very interested, but you couldn't take on board because they were clearly activists and they weren't in the right demographics. But it's now in your financial interest to find a way to get those people in because you make more money. Actually, one thing I do remember about the Citizens' Assembly is, and I noted it again today because a lot of the people I saw talking about the provisions, uh, the votes on gender equality and how great they were and you know how it was another great victory for the legitimacy of the Citizens' Assembly. When the Citizens' Assembly was looking at the issue of abortion, there was a point where they voted against something that activists had thought they would vote for. And people went fucking ballistic. And it was weird because it was always very clear that they were voting against that so they could give an even stronger result later on. Yes. Absolutely clear to everyone. But some of the leading lights of Irish life didn't either didn't realise that or still felt they had to comment. So you had major NGO figures coming out and saying things like, you know, well, this shows that we shouldn't give complicated issues to an unrepresentative body for a couple of weekends and figure <laughs> they're going to come to the right result. And then, of course, the committee did come back with the right result. And I saw in real time, a lot of these people just go back and delete the Twitter messages and things they sent out and just respond with, you know, well, this shows, you know, you just, you get people in a room and you, you get the academics and they will come to, you know, they'll come to the right decision because when they get truly educated on the topic. And I was looking back over, um, just when this came out, I was looking at some of the stuff I had saved 
looking at citizens' assemblies. And I found an article by um, a guy called Owen Carolyn. Now, Owen Carolyn is a professor at UCD, founding director of their Centre for Constitutional Studies. And he was writing about the Citizens' Assembly and whether or not they're legitimate and what they are. Yes. And he brought that up. He said uh, this, there were echoes of um, complaints among some of the other side of the campaign when it briefly appeared that the Assembly might recommend against reform. While it is uh, always questionable to read too much into Twitter comments, it is striking that complaints about the process quickly emerged amongst users and some assembly members disappointed with the vote to replace rather than repeal. Concerns were expressed about alleged lobbying by members, about the clarity of the process, about the expertise, understanding or representativeness of members, about the involvement of the wrong experts, and about the perceived undue influence of paper from a senior council about the legal implications of various options. Perhaps the telling aspect of these criticisms was that they were directed to aspects of the process that, in deliberative theory, would undermine the legitimacy of the process as a whole. As such, they raise a question mark about the extent to which the perceived legitimacy or success of the Assembly is based not on process, but on its outcome. The founding director of the UCD Centre for Constitutional Studies. Well, I think he said a mouthful there. I can't say he's wrong. No. But no, I, I think if we were giving different results, lots of Conservatives would be happy with this. Absolutely. Gary, if this was being done 30 or 40 years ago, for whatever reason, and it was being done under the control of a well-organised Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, with the Labour Party desperately trying to get one or two of its women and men inside, it would produce all sorts of results. And people would nod on the right, say, ah, fine, fine, fine thing, fine deliberative body coming up with sensible, sensible solutions. Absolutely, of course it does. But I just don't like it on the face. And I didn't like it then, and when it was introduced, before they even said what it was going to do, but they were starting to make noises about it. Myself and a couple of other cabudgeons were. I was on the radio and said, Mark Coleman, and I said, Mark, this is just this is just something which has been it's been set up to do a job. It has there's no purpose. It's just a prophylaxis for politicians. And we have a boring old thing to repeat. But we have a we have a body which is a, which is voted for by millions of citizens. And if we don't like what they do, then we get an opportunity at some stage to say, well, we didn't like what you did. You did a bad job. And we take their job away and we send other people to do another bad job for us instead. It is actually a very open and transparent process, the way in which we elect the doll. Far more so, I suspect, than this is. But it confers this weird ersatz respectability now on all of these opinions. Rather than being the opinion of some off-the-wall academic from TCD, it now becomes the voted-upon opinion of the Citizens' Assembly. And we all have to sit back and take it desperately seriously, even when, and in this case, we're not talking about issues that we might have, shall we say, moral opinions about, but just simply practical issues, data, empirical-driven objections to, which you think, that's just nonsense, lads. What are you talking about? And putting things... Um, We've had a de de debate in this country a long time about what is suitable and what is not suitable to put into the Constitution. Well, we're talking about putting stuff into the Constitution now, which I can't see how the hell it's going to work in practice. Unless you just put it in as some kind of a nod and a gesture and say, we're putting this in because we think it looks nice, but lads, don't anybody take it seriously. 
let's let's go into what the actual what they actually said. Now we'll we'll pick and choose here because there's forty nine different things they voted on. For I mean that by itself, Gary, forty nine. Well, Michael, they spent you know ten weekends with a carefully curated group of experts. Uh, most of the um, the things that the slideshows and things they were given, you can view online. It's worth doing because some of them, there are some academics who really should not be let near PowerPoint or clip art. There's a substantial part of the population, Gary, who should never be let near PowerPoint. I would say nearly everyone, actually. We'd all be better off if it just wasn't there. Anything you want to start on, Michael? Oh, what do we start on? Um, oh, how about, oh, let's see, um, the wage gap. Oh, the wage gap we have to close. Yes, yes, yes. Because we have dates, don't we? We have numbers and dates. Now, this is going to be a tricky one, Gary. This is going to be fun. Oh, yeah, that actually, Michael, just before we get on to that one, just a weird one. Just, just an odd one they threw in there. When they were meeting with people, some of the people who got in were union people. Low people. They slithered onto the stage, and then they slithered out. I'm sorry, you're meaning trades union here rather than the United Kingdom union? The people in a better time would have met the Pinkertons. Okay, go on. So here's one of the questions they voted on, because it was, it was, it was very much impressed upon them. That um, strong collective bargaining, Michael, absolutely a gendered issue. So question 40. Support employment contract security through establishing a legal right to collective bargaining to improve wages, working conditions, and rights in all sectors. Hmm. Would you like to guess what the yes percentage was? 75. 96.7%. <laughs> well, it's a glorious victory for the people and for our, great, and our, for our glorious leader. And I, for one... Uh, welcome the advent of whatever the hell that means. So there's two things related to the gender pay gap. One is a bill called the Gender Pay Gap Information Bill, which has been kicking around for a while. They ask people would they implement that without delay, and the law should include penalties for non-compliance and an obligation for annual reporting. Yes percentage there, 96.7%. <laughs> Who's voting no? It looks like there were just three people in this assembly. Because I keep saying no, three. So it looks like there were just three people who were just like, no, no, no. <laughs> Doesn't go far enough. And then one of them broke on, the, on you know, should there be a living wage? And it goes down to two. <laughs> I, Becker, I, I, Becker, very in favour of this. The people dealing with small businesses tend to be less in favour because it's a compliance cost. And it's, it's just... Yeah, to be fair, there, I mean, yes. I accept that point. Actually, that's a more serious... There is a serious point there, which... You'll find large large businesses will often favour levels of regulation of any kind, whether it's regarding employees or whether it's in guard, say the number of toilets you have to have in a in a place before you can serve people a cup of coffee or that the the kinds of things that will impose disproportionate levels of cost on small businesses. Minimum wage is a good example because. <clears throat> Very often, large employees are paying. Large employers are paying at or above the minimum wage, whereas smaller competitors or individual shops can't necessarily afford to do that. So for them, for for large businesses, it's it's a useful tool. Yeah, I mean that might be one reason that Ibeck is in favour of it. A shall we say cynical man, Michael? Certainly not myself. Might say that there might be a financial interest for Ibeck there because if regulatory barriers become more pronounced 
well, businesses might go to them to learn how to best, you know, comply with those regulatory barriers, and um, that might increase the power of IBEC, while actually not really, in any way, inconveniencing their members. That would be a cynical point, but so I'm glad you're not making it. No, no, no. Anyway, moving swiftly on from touching that, question 37, the state should set targets in legislation to reduce the hourly gender pay gap, currently 14%, to 9% by 2025, and to 4% by 2030, with a view to eliminating it by 2035. Yeah. 94.4% yes. So what they are saying is that the CSO in 2014 showed that women, when you look at gross hourly earnings, earn 14% less than men. Now, what that is, for those who are curious, is if you take the wages of all the men and of all the women... And you put them against each other, and then you break it down into an hourly rate of pay, which on it, or women earn fourteen percent less. Okay, Gary. So if we look across the developed world, and Ireland falls into that category, women under the age of thirty-six earn more than men, and that gap is bigger in certain areas, say certain kinds of professions and whatever. In some places, it's thirty-two; some places, it's thirty-six. But certainly after college. And for around the first 10 years of professional life, women, women on, on average earn more than men. So would that gap be addressed by this? Uh, no. No no idea how it can be reduced to 9%. You're looking at a 5% reduction every five years. And that would mean by 2035, the total wage earned by men and the total wage earned by women would be identical. Well, there are, there are ways you can do this. I mean, you, you'll, you'll have to... Okay, you're, you're going to have to induce, introduce an, a state-led uh, wage policy. This is across everything. You'd have to control absolute earnings for everyone. Yeah, but we can do that. So, for example, people, uh, trawlers, right? Fishermen, people who go and fish in, in the sea on trawlers. Vast, vast majority of them are men, right? So, either we can... In boost the number of women who are who who are going into the high seas to fish, or I think it's probably easier to do this. We live, put a cap on their wages because they're earning too much. Um, block layers, plasterers, particularly in a if you in a moment where you have a strong uh, strong economy in the housing sector, right, or the building sector, you'll find they'll be earning too much. So you have to bring you have to legislate so you bring their wages down. But say, for example, areas which are dominated by women, say like uh, preschool childcare, we would increase their wages. Computer engineers, design, people involved in, at the top level in creative businesses involving IT, tech, engineering, that kind of thing. You have to bring their wages down and bring up the wages of people involved, say, in in cleaning or in in in, in domestic uh, work, that kind of thing. But you'll have you'll have to keep twiddling it because you will find that women will start to get into other areas, and then they'll and they'll want the same money as the men have. So you might have to bring the men back up, and it'll be cut. But we can do it. How many times do we have to talk about this, Gary? Honestly, seriously, how often do we have to talk about the, the notion of minimum wage and explain that this is not actually about women being paid less to do the same job as men. The gender pay gap is a zombie statistic. It can be debunked as many times as you want. 
but then it will keep coming out. Here's an interesting one. Here's an article. Um, RTE published an article on it in 2020, and they were publishing it on um, Equal Pay Day, which is a moronic fucking day to begin with. But this was by Ingrid Miley, who is their uh, industry and employment correspondent. So they're talking about the gender pay gap. They say Ireland's is actually under the EU's. But then they make this point. However, employment law partner Mary Brazel of McCain Fitzgerald Solicitors stresses that the gender pay gap should not be confused with the concept of equal pay for equal work, adding that a gender pay gap does not necessarily equate to discrimination. Pay campaigners also acknowledge that the calculations are a bit of a blunt tool as there are many reasons for disparities in earnings such as education level, the number of hours worked and the kind of work involved. And then it goes on point out that uh, women tend to work in part-time occupations more than men all of this sort of thing and this has always been the problem with this activists have conflated this with the idea of equal pay for equal work but it's already illegal to pay someone less or more for work on the basis of their sex bar i think certain uh, areas such as modeling and the like where you can get away with it there are certain gaps in that in the arts you could you can pay an actress more or, or an actor less or vice versa so there is there's an assumption here that this is due to discrimination but they haven't actually been able to show it's due to discrimination so what we have here is a lot of people talking about it as if it is openly discriminatory but then when you look into it you say well can you show it's discriminatory it might be discriminatory but can you actually show it is and there you just get a load of assumptions or people will start talking about how women will take time off to raise children. But then you start going, well, that's, that's a choice. That's not something you do. And actually that there is an argument in certain circles that the gender pay gap should be more accurately called the um, childbirth or marriage pay gap. Yeah, I mean, so two points I just want to address. If you're talking about the, the childbirth or, or marriage, I mean, I can remember Thomas Sowell, in the 1970s, Gary, the 70s, now we're, met, and we're talking about the United States there, we're not talking about Ireland, but I, I suspect in Ireland you, you, you did have a gender pay gap in the, in the 1970s, and fairly confident of it. He was confronted with a set of statistics. Now, one of the things about Seoul is Seoul is an absolute madman when it comes to the data. He goes into the data. He loves getting in to those books after books of the stats. That's where he started life working at the Labour Bureau. And he, he, one of the points he made was that if you looked at the, the the stats that were being used in the 70s to show that women were being underpaid as in, in the comparison to men, he said, that they, the marriage was the central statistic. It was the most, the most important thing. That if you look at women who never married and the United States, it was important in Ireland, it wouldn't have been, because you had women who were single in the statistics but had been married in there but didn't that wasn't considered but women who had never married earned the same or more than men there is a marriage penalty and then and whether it's a marriage penalty or if it's marriage and children probably it's not so much it's a marriage penalty and which is then exacerbated shall we say by 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 the issue of children the, the, one of the things that uh, we we've talked about before i mean we're talking just to give the listeners a sense of there are vast numbers of reasons why any person in one, any, at any one time may earn more or less. But one of the, one of the problems, if you're looking at men and women as, and the quality of pay is that there, there are certain kinds of work that are available to a young man who doesn't have particularly good educational qualifications or an employment background that are not available to young women if he's willing to do them. So for example, 
you can earn very, very good money in North America working in forestry. It's very well paid. Logging workers are 19, and I'm looking at the figures here supplied by the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the United States. 97.2% of logging workers are male. It also has the highest fatality injury rate per 100,000 workers of any occupation. It's 132.7. You think of that, Gary, 132.7 in 100,000. That's a massive level. The other occupation, which sometimes is considered to be the most dangerous in the world, is crab fishing off in, in the seas off Alaska. Again, if you're a 20 year old guy and you're not very bright, you know, you can get on a boat and in a good season, you can earn very good money indeed. You do also have a 54.8 uh, fatality rate injury per workers and in, in, a, in a business which is 99.9% male. Anyway, without going through all of them, if you look at the, all, all of the most dangerous jobs or professions are massively dominated by men. The lowest proportionately are farm people involved in farming, where you've got 96% in farmers and 79% of agricultural workers are men. But the rest, you're either talking in the high 80s or the, or, the, or the 90s up to the high 90s. Mining, for example, mining is well paid. Working in the oil and gas industry in the United States and Canada is very well paid. 99.9% male and, and a significantly high, number 20 in the most dangerous occupation in the United States. So physical strength, youth and physical strength and a willingness to take risk and to deal with physical discomfort are repaid in money. Because that's not to say there aren't women who couldn't do these jobs. There probably are. I'm sure there are, but they're not that many. And they're not going to make a massive statistical difference. Jobs that are not available to women with lower educational outcomes tend to be lower paid. Now, Education is an issue there, of course, Gary, which we're not talking about here. We've seen a decline in access to education and an increase in educational outcomes all across the board for women at primary school, secondary school and third level. Which And we've been mealy-mouthed talking about the problem of boys and men in education, but nobody seems to be terribly worried about that. I don't see any talk about that in this, but that's another subject. Sorry. No, I mean, the, the thing to remember here is that you can absolutely have a system in which everyone doing what they want leads to gross financial disparity between them. And when you actually see the, the, the surveying of men and women and why they choose jobs, the number one reason for men, and it's not even close, is money. Prestige is also up there, pretty much. Men as a composite group are far more interested in making money in their jobs than women. Yes, Women tend to more highly value things like free time, friendship, ability to do the things that interest them. Family. Which, you know, there is a lot to be said for that sort of stuff. In fact, women may be absolutely right when you look at their average answers there. But if you were to take those two groups, strip away male and female from them, one group that said when they look for a job, these are the things they prioritise, and another group that said, well, we prioritise money, prestige, uh, power. And you were asked to guess how these groups, the outcomes that they would achieve. I don't think anyone would say it was discrimination when you said, well, obviously the second is going to end up, or at least attempt to end up in places that pay much higher wages, because that's what they're, they are optimizing to do that. And the other group are optimizing for an entirely different purpose. And you see it all over the place. And it's all throughout the list of recommendations here. Assumptions that there is rampant discrimination 
but never the need to prove there is actually this discrimination. And for something like this, where you're saying that you want to, to balance that that um, weight, gender pay gap, if you were to actually assume that you could balance it, it would require massive social engineering and massive state supports. Because what you see in most countries is men and women are interested in different jobs. And there have been endless amounts of money and time and effort poured in all throughout Europe, but particularly the Scandinavian countries, to changing that and trying to get men and women to go into other jobs. So the attempts to get more men into nursing have not succeeded anywhere I'm aware of. They just do not happen. And the richer a country gets, the worse those trends become. Because as you remove the survival pressure from people and you put in stronger social nets, they actually become much more inclined to do the things they want to do and this is an anecdote. There was a there was a study done by Leeds Beckett University and the University of Missouri, which was used data on four hundred and seventy five thousand teenagers across sixty seven countries or regions for studies, and it produced what has been called the gender equality paradox, which found that countries they quote such as like Albania and Algeria have a higher percentage of women in their STEM graduates than countries that have high levels of gender equality, such as Finland, Norway, or Sweden. And it seems to be based that countries with less gender equality have little, have less welfare support. And then women are therefore attracted to high, the relatively high paid STEM careers because they're more attractive. It says that um, STEM careers are generally well secured, are well, secured and well paid. Uh, and the risk of not, and the, but the risks of not following such a path can vary. In more affluent countries where any choice of career feels relatively safe, women may feel able to make choices based on non-economic factors. Conversely, in countries with fewer economic opportunities where employment might be precarious, a well-paid and relatively secure STEM career can seem more attractive to women. Now, there's the, to me, the really interesting phrase there is, where they feel safe, women may be able to make choices based on non-economic factors. Choices. Where women don't feel they have to choose to do these things, they choose to do other things. Even in those societies where, to the extent that it has happened, it's possible in human culture, professions have been degendered, shall we say, that there is no particular gender expectation that a man should do this or a woman should do that. But in those, precisely in those countries, people are less likely to choose because of economic reasons, but for other reasons, or at least specifically women are. So for you to achieve some kind of rough 50-50 parity across the board in these things, I don't know what you're going to do, Gary, if you're going to allow people to make choices based on what their interests and their desires for how their lives should be. I don't see how you can achieve that. The thing is, if you have this gender disparity in where people go, and it's because they want to go in those places, and there's not structural barriers... And they haven't demonstrated there are structural barriers to entry into particular industries for men or women. You have two options there. You can either place structural barriers in these areas to try and get less of or more of the gender that's underrepresented. Or you can mess with the payment structure inside it if you're looking to actually equalize payment. So you could reduce earnings in an area that's 80% men and increase it in others and you try and do it that way you could probably do it with a taxation system but you would have to engage in 
grossly complicated and incredibly overreaching policy um, tax formulation there. It would be madness. It would be total lunacy. I don't know what it would do to the marketplace as well, because obviously they were, the labour market is intimately connected with all sorts of other markets. The other thing there is we have gender law by declaration. So if it was a case that you did this, you could, using less paperwork than it takes to open a bank account, change your gender and yes. absolutely walk through all of this. That's actually one of the things that I, I noted here that they're talking about and which I think will actually deeply concern some of the feminist groups. They want the constitution changed to enshrine um, gender equality. Now, the thing there, for, for those who aren't aware of this, gender equality is a very particular phrase. Equality on the basis of sex is pretty easy because sex is a biological reality. You, there's two sexes and there's a very small amount of people who uh, will be classed as intersex. Although even in those cases, you can actually classify them as a sex depending on the, the system used. It's relatively easy. Although activists have gone out of their way to make it seem far more complicated than it is. When you go with gender, well, then gender is fluid and gender is a self-held belief. Sex is static. So gender equality is very easy to get around if you can change your gender. And why wouldn't you be able to change your gender? Because it's just a belief. And the equation of sex with gender is um, very popular currently, but also not great for what would traditionally have been called sex-based rights. Yeah. It's also why you hear people say things like sex is uh, something you were assigned at birth, because then it just seems like something fairly arbitrary that you were told, which is, you know, where gender is your own self-held opinion, where sex is actually the biological reality of the situation. It's not something you were assigned at all. So that might be actually quite interesting to see some of the feminist groups uh, deal with that. One thing I did, I did like, Michael, question 30, uh, making maternity, paternity and parental leave available to all elected representatives, including the ministers, although legislation or constitutional amendment may be required. 96.6% said yes, 3% said no. Now that, to me, has a very particular suggestion here. So, TDs don't need maternity leave. And TDs don't need maternity leave because TDs are paid a salary and that salary is given to you if you turn up once and sign your name into the book that says, hello, I am a new TD. Yes. That's all that's there. There's no one to give you maternity leave. You don't really work for anyone. You're elected. What it would allow you to do, and this is my theory about this, it would enable you to get uh, expenses easier. Because currently you can go in and say you were sick and they will give you some of your travel expenses because you would have spent those expenses, but you didn't because you were sick. Now let's start right off with that's not what a fucking expense is. And they're basically just using it as a wage. They want that change. So if you're pregnant, you currently have to come in and say you were sick. And they're complaining that we should be able to just say we're pregnant because having to say we're sick is demeaning. To which I would say, you shouldn't get it. You just... I don't need to make it easier to allow TDs to claim expenses, because that's very clearly what this is. Yeah, we need a constitutional amendment in order to allow TDs fiddle their exes. The fact, and the fact they were comfortable coming out and saying, well, I have to say I was sick to get those travel expenses. When I didn't travel. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, 
and I the fact they're able they have been actually able to position this as a women's rights issue is fucking amazing. And I can only actually stand that's it. high class. Like I can only I can only look at that and say, actually, no, that's re like great job on that. That's just really well done. Because it is. At the end of the day, all it is is a way for these people to more easily claim expenses that they're not due. And the answer here is not to expand it to make it easier for them to get expenses, but to crack down on those people who have claimed those expenses without actually travelling anywhere. And you shouldn't be able to get travel expenses if you're sick. What fucking sense does that make? <laughs> and the, by the way, this is not, like, these, these expenses, these particular, that is not a small amount of money. Depending on where you live, you could be looking at a substantial payout. Oh, it's it's, it's not jump change. It's, it's, it's but we've talked about this before. What this is, it it it's an insight into the way that um, some TDs think about the remuneration, because TDs don't like having uh, wage increases because they know it doesn't poll well. What they have over the years, at different times, and not just in Ireland. This is something people do all over the places. You you pad you, you increase the expense here. You have another expense for that. Another you will we'll, we'll give you an expense for this. And what you actually you're really doing is increasing the salary without increasing the baseline. And because it's to, it's, it's dispersed and because it's under the heading of expenses, it doesn't look like you actually have increased the salaries. But what you've done is you increase the, the the amount of money in their pockets. But TDs have got to the point where they see this money as being an integral part of their their package, their remuneration. And they don't like it when, for whatever reason, it's taken away. And I can understand that. I mean, if somebody, if I was used to getting 20, 20 grand to me, and I no longer was, I'd say, well, where's me 20 grand? That's not nice, lads. Ah, come on, just because I got pregnant, or just because I got sick. Um, no, as regards, I do think it's, <laughs> pregnancy is not sickness. But it's a bit rich to kind of go, well, it's only previously been allowed improperly if you were sick, and I want it. I'm like, well, I don't really give a shit what you want, frankly. Yeah, yeah. Like, what I want is for you to just stop. Go away. Go earn your money. I suppose this is earning your money. Drive, drive in a fucking circle. Just drive. <laughs> then come back. <laughs> when you travel, then we can give you the money. So we've got, you know, change the con- there's a couple of change the constitutions there. They want to establish a statutory body for gender equality under the responsibility of a cabinet minister. And that will coordinate gender equality issues, such as the massive social engineering and tax engineering we'll need to get to their other things. I don't... Uh, oh, God. These, these are the things, these are the really important things. These are the big questions facing this economy and this country. These are things we should desperately be caring about. Workplaces should be required to have a... Uh, Operate gender-sensitive and anti-discriminatory selection and and promotion processes. On the face of it, less egregious. But again, the state legislating how businesses should handle their own uh, internal operations. Also, Gary, you never know what these things are until they come into existence. I mean, what does it mean? I mean, we can look at it and say, gender equality. What does that... is that going to effectively mean? Equal access to training, assignments, and mentoring opportunities for all employees, including part-time and remote workers. How the fuck do you do that? That's just not possible. How do you give equal mentoring opportunities 
to remote workers to full-time, like a part-time remote worker under this, the same mentoring opportunities as a full-time on-location person, particularly considering that most mentoring opportunities are informal. And assignments, how do you give the the same access to assignments between a full-time worker and a part-time worker? There's no sense with this kind of stuff. And it tends to either come from civil service or academia. There's absolutely no sense that these things are anything but cost-free. They're just good things. They w- There's no sense that this will actually end up costing companies money. It may affect their, their efficiency to do business. It may affect their competitiveness. But it will certainly cost them money. And if that if they are producing a service or product that the people want to buy, it will make it more expensive. And it will add to the cost of the, produ- to the consumer at the other end. And they'll achieve nothing. I mean, these... The safety, like the um, the safety statement, you know, I've talked about before. The safety statement, you have to have a safety statement. If you're a, a tradesman and you're working in a building site, you have to deposit your, your safety statement in the office with the quantity surveyor and with the builder. And the copy of every safety statement has to be present on the site. So there's usually something like a, a sealed black, just because it has to be protected from the weather and it can't, be, it can't get wet. And everybody drops one of these safety statements. And back in the good old days, Gary, in the boom, boom times, people were paying anywhere between five and 600 quid to thousands quid to get a safety set written. It became a new, a new, a new profession. People have little offices over shops and safety statements. They would write it. I remember working, uh, helping out, helping out doing the back once for someone and these lads were coming in and they were leaving their safety. And I asked them one after the other, have you ever read this? No. Not one of them had ever read it. All of these things cost money. It cost them time. It cost them money. That was a cost that they passed on to the builder and the builder passed on to the buyer and had zero, zero effect on the safety of anybody on any building site in Ireland. But it was a great idea. That's what we should, we should have a safety statement. And all of this is the same. Well, not all of this, but so much of it. There's no sense that any of these things have costs. They're just good things that we should do. It's just noise. So let's get on to the good section, Michael. Gender quotas. Several questions on this. Increased penalties for parties that do not meet statutory gender quotas, 75%. Extend the gender quota for party candidates at general elections to local elections, elections to the Shannon and European elections, and review every five years. The 30% threshold should be increased to 40% for women. For all elections, 83.1% yes. Make funding to public boards contingent on reaching a 40% gender balance quota by 2025, 83.1% yes. Funny thing here, they explicitly call out sporting organisations as groups that will need uh, 40% gender balance. But like, why does Camogie, why does a local Camogie board need to be 40% men? These are mysteries known only to God. Does that make it better? The, 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 they have the, the, what was the, the numbers for politics? The quotas for the politicians? They want that up to uh, 40% by 2022. For candidates, is it? They, the NGOs have been trying to actually get it put in for elected representatives. They've run into the stumbling blocks there that it's obviously unconstitutional and you know, flagrantly offensive to the idea of democracy. 
But they're getting there. In 2010, you remember when they they uh, they were bringing in the first gender quotas for candidate selection? Yeah. The Irish Times went and talked to... Uh, there were 23 women in the door at the time. And the Irish Times went and asked them what they thought. And of the 23... Uh, just to put the, the numbers in context, what percentage voted for that in this? For the increasing the gender quotas for in politics? Uh, increasing the gender quota was 81... Uh, sorry, 83.1% and 87.6% voted to extend the gender quotas to all other elections within five years. Or sorry, within one year, by the end of 2022. So, in 2010... Of the 23 women deputies, 14 were opposed to the introduction introduction of gender quotas in the candidate selection process. And yet we have 80 odd percent of these. I I, I just think it's an odd notion that when you actually ask women who are the professional politicians, and that's not just, that cut, at the time it cut across the, uh, shall we say, cut across the board, Labour, you had Labour TDs, Joanna Tuffy, Roisin Shortall at the time, Mary Upton uh, were all opposed to the issue. Independent TD Maureen O'Sullivan described quotas as insulting to women. And yet here, uh, underlying all of this, Gary, I mean, stating the bleeding obvious, there is a single basic assumption that there is actually no fundamental difference between men and women. And if we got rid of all of the nasty, horrible bigotry and prejudice and imposed gender roles, etc., etc., everything that men, everything that human beings do would be done roughly 50%, 50%. That there is nothing in life that cannot be done by simply pushing the thing out. If you want, if you actually wanted more women in politics, would it not make more sense to go to women in politics and say, well, why do you think there are not so many women? Is there something we need to change about the way we do politics? In the same way as you're talking about industries where women don't, where, where women say work less or earn less. Law firms, we know, well, if you look at young women lawyers in the United States, and I think this is also true in Britain, I don't know about Ireland, certainly, they will earn more through their 20s and into their 30s. When they get married and or when they start families, they start to lose ground against their male competitors. And one of the reasons is they value the time they spend with their families and they value the time with their children. They also, they're also more likely to refuse opportunities to become partner. They're likely to go to smaller firms because they value the flexibility that certain firms will give them about the choices they have. They are less likely to want to travel a lot. They are less likely to want or to, to be available to work at weekends. I mean, that that is that is something that comes up through this. There's all this about, well, there should be parental leave and that sort of stuff. But then everything else is about childcare. There is this unstated assumption here that the correct course for a woman is to be in work. And that, yeah. it's, that's a kind of weird one there because they're assuming the correct approach for people and sort of it's it's sort of chiding you like if you want to stay home with your children there's something wrong with that as opposed to you know doing this is the thing that will make you happy and then you have the national women's council of Ireland going that's the wrong choice in a weird way many of, uh, 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 of those involved in this 
advocating for this position are people of the left. And yet, in a weird way, they have actually bought into an understanding of the role of human being as being homo economicus in an absolutely profound way. I've read, I don't know, many articles written by, shall we say, hardline free, uh, free market types saying that we need to get more women in the economy because if we had more women in the economy being productive rather than just staying at home, women of ability, they could get them into the economy and you could see, you could add four, five, six percent to GDP within a very short period of time just by getting more women into the economy. And we can leave the minding of their children to people who would be economically less important and less productive because it's not a very taxing or difficult job to to care for bring up children. But, you know, well educated, capable women need to be in the economy being productive. Now, if that is what you want to do, grand fire ahead, do what you like. But this assumption that the it is this, this is somehow the correct choice. I when it always seemed to me that the whole argument was about choice, free choice, that women should be in a position to make choices about their lives that rather than have to be subject to the demands of the choices made by men. But when men, women make a certain kind of choice, that is not the correct you choice. See, that's that's to the make. problem. You see, that's how everyone starts. They're all like, you should be able to make your own choices. But then you start making choices and they're like, no, not like that. Those are the wrong choices. All of this is built on this assumption that this is, there's discrimination here. Or, and I think that's kind of the best assumption, because if they're working on this and that's not their assumption, instead they're kind of going, you've made the wrong choices and we're going to make you make the right choices. I don't know, do you have any friends or, who have women friends who have, made, say, more than two kids. I know a number of women who have what would these days be considered large families, five and six children. And because of their age, they've had them. And they've chosen, actually, to have them young because for various reasons also. I think ultimately they, they see themselves returning to the labour force, making more money for a comfortable retirement. But when their, their kids are well on the road, they enjoy this. They tell me they, they like having kids, they enjoy being with their children. This is something that gives them pleasure. However, they regularly encounter not just women, men as well, who regard the choice that they have. They look at all these kids and there's something almost distasteful about them. Now, some of that may be some of our friends in the environmental movement who regard the production of more human beings as just as an act of treachery against the planet, full stop. But a lot of the time it's just God, you're just breeding. There's an odd kind of almost visceral distaste for these women that they have made this choice. And as I, I, one, one young woman, I, well, yeah, she, she's a young woman, she's younger than me. She has, uh, she's a doctor, uh, she's a doctor in, in uh, organic chemistry, biochemistry, something like that, and has, has I would, what I regard as a good job now, but has maybe had, had gone down the career path that she could have done. And she's regularly encountered people wondering why the hell she just wasted herself on this. And it's a weird thing, isn't it? It's, 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 it's like they really have bought into this, what can you call it, capitalist free market notion of what it, what it is to be a productive human being. I do love the idea of like the average member of the National Women's Council of Ireland 
time, like some female doctor or teacher or engineer or mechanic or whatever the hell, you know, they have made suboptimal choices and they need to make the correct choices. Yeah. And you're just like, National Women's Council of Ireland, Michael, this might shock you, is not the economic powerhouse of the country. I mean, I would, I would, I would go a little bit further and say they're actually parasites who produce nothing of use or value. And that uh, their removal through fire and the torch would in fact make the public purse better off and have no negative impact. I I saw a bit. I saw some of the stuff that was online, and there are there are bits and pieces of this available online. Some of the expert testimonies, some slideshows and things. I think I'm curious. A lot of these proposals have. Uh, economic consequences isn't there a proposal regarding the percentage of gdp that should be spent on childcare? oh yes they want that to go to one percent within a set period i'd be curious to know what economists were involved in all of this i bet did turn up well i i'd be could turn up to, to dogfight you know, i'd be curious to, if you had the likes of i don't know was morgan kelly at it was bright cormac lucy or who i mean who are the the heavyweight hitting economists that turned up? You ha- did anybody attempt to put a price ticket on any of these things, or are they simply good things? And should we will we will work out how to pay for it because you know it's a worthwhile thing and there's plenty of money. Because God knows, Gary, there's plenty of money. I mean, it's not like we've gone through a pandemic with the economy being shut down and running a sixty-four billion pound or euro deficit. But the very last question they were asked, question 49, willingness to pay. If necessary, we are also prepared to support and pay higher taxes based on the principle of ability to pay to make a reality of our recommendations. 95.6%. Only four people said they weren't willing to pay for this program. One of the funny things, Gary, is when people are asked, should the wealthy pay more tax? A lot of people say yes. And then you ask them if they consider themselves wealthy you'll find that a, a, a large proportion of those people say, no, not me. But when you point out to them that actually the particular income point that they are, would fall, they would fall into the category. That can be quite a shocking experience for them. Very often people who want to spend more on taxation are keen that other people should spend more on taxation, but not then, obviously, not then. And as regards this note, well, yeah, I, I, I would be prepared... And we've heard this from many billionaires recently about different things. You know, so you know what? Yeah, the, the tax return isn't isn't a, a maximum; it's a minimum requirement. Give them whatever you like. You can you can donate to the uh, to the state. It's actually quite simple. I knew a lady whose husband was a novelist, quite had been quite a successful novelist, and went into the bank when they lived here near 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 Gory and. Uh, she went got lover she went into the bank one morning to get something and discovered that the account was empty uh, her husband had become shall we say towards the end of his life a bit distracted and had gotten a defix in his head about something had taken all their money and had sent it to the to the revenue <laughs> because he felt for some reason that this was the right thing to do she was, shall we say, a little bit worried. She said they were perfectly sweet about it. And when she explained what had happened, and they gave her a check, said, it's all right, no, you, you can have it back. But for a while there, she was saying, oh, my God, the exchequer are going to take all my money, keep it all. But yes, you can do that. I mean, and people do do that. But 
all of this will be rolled out now. At some stage, at some point, this will all be rolled out as part of a new, wonderful legislative agenda. Do you know what, Gary? In 20 years' time, there will be politicians in Sweden saying, but have you looked at Ireland? Have you looked at the example of what they're doing in Ireland? Ten people gathered around a burning trash can. (laughs) I saw a friend of ours commenting on Twitter when he was looking over the results from the assembly. And he said, the more I read this shit, the more convinced I am I will not be spending my twilight years living in this country. <laughs> it is what it is. I think on that note, we should uh, we should close for the day. It's been fun, and I'm sure it's been a cheerful and uplifting experience for all the listeners. But anyway, it's a wonderful little country, Gary, if you only could roof it. All the best.